0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes and I'm with Terry Fakes this week. And we have committed to upping our pace on the Through the Bible books. That's right. Because if we continued like we were in 2019, I think it was going to take us about seven years to finish <laughs> uh, going through these uh, Bible overviews. Now, seven years would be great because of the biblical significance. Right. But I would rather we get through more quickly. Yes. And the other reason is we're just really enjoying doing these. Mm-hmm. Both the prep, the reading, the discussion, moving through the books of the Bible like this is is a great. Um, it's a great exercise. If you've read the books before, it's also great right. if you haven't read the books before. And for us, having read these books before, it's nice to go back and think about what are the main takeaways, what are the backgrounds, what should you know when you're trying to break into this book. What are what are the things that are going to Ask some questions when you get to them. What are the things that uh, you need to do a little historical study to understand? And at the same time, asking yourself, what are the big takeaways? What are the big faith lessons? What are the encouragements? What are the things that I learned about God or about humanity or what points to the Messiah in the Old Testament? Uh Uh, All of those disciplines are part of the Christian life. And we hope that there are disciplines that you're also doing as you're reading these books Along with us, or taking notes for the next time you do read them in your right. Bible study reading plan. So, we are going to be taking questions for another QA episode here in the next few weeks. So, go ahead and send those in. We've already gotten a few for September, but you can email those at info at so com You can text, you can DM on Instagram or Twitter, you can post on Facebook. If, if it tags us, we will find it and we will answer it. Can we respond by mail? Yeah, if, if you respond by mail, uh, we're probably looking at October, November for the response to those questions. But feel free. So this week we're going to continue the trend that we started two weeks ago. We did first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and now we're doing the book of Ezra. And I want to make one complaint uh, before we start into the book of Ezra against the uh, planning committee who yes. chose this book next. Uh-huh. One of the things we talked about at the beginning of first and second Samuel, and we mentioned this in the podcast on Deuteronomy as well is the Old Testament is broken up into families of books, right. is probably a good way to put it. Not that they have the same authorship, but they're in the same tradition. Mm-hmm. And there's intertextual mentions of other books and right. uh, different time periods. We went over in First and Second Kings that some of these books, and especially a lot of these prophets, were focusing on a certain geographic area. Right. Of Israel, whether that be Judah in the south, whether that be Israel in the north, mm-hmm. and the different fates that those kingdoms suffered. What we're doing here is we are jumping from one stream or one tradition to the other. That Although we are marching ahead chronologically, we're picking up right where Second Kings leaves off. Right. We are actually jumping into a little bit different biblical tradition, and that would be the first and second chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah tradition. Now we're going to have the opportunity to talk about how that's not as big a deal when right. you start to read the text, but I think it's worth saying that first and second Samuel through first and second Kings ends at the end of second Kings as a unit. And then when you start into first Chronicles, you realize I'm reading a lot of the same stories that I just read. Right. And you go all the way through second Chronicles and you get the same phenomenon of first and second Samuel to first and second Kings when you go from second Chronicles into Ezra. In fact, you actually get a preview of season two, recap of season one for the first half of the book of Ezra. That's true. That you've covered either uh-huh. in 1 Chronicles or in between 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, I mean, and Ezra. So I just want to say there's a few things in here that that makes a difference. The references in Ezra back to the time of Israel are typically references back to the tradition of First and Second Chronicles. Not that they're saying things that are historically different, but they're telling them from a different perspective. And one of the things that's important to note is Ezra comes from a priestly tradition, Mm -hmm. not a kingly tradition. There's a lot more focus on the Mosaic Law. There's a lot more focus on keeping the feasts, the Passovers. We'll get into all this shortly. Some people think that Ezra was actually the editor of, of first and second chronicles right not the author maybe but the editor of Mm -hmm. first and second chronicles and so that makes sense given their connections so with that complaint registered we probably (laughs) should have done first and second chronicles (laughs) first but that would be so repetitive after first and second kings
1: that's true you can always come back when we finish it and listen to them in the proper order that's exactly right you know one other thing before we get into the historical context of this that you you mentioned when we were talking about this is Ezra basically breaks with the idea of a chronological order narrative. And then second thing that you might want to talk about, because I thought you expressed it pretty well, is even though we're in the middle, you know, if you open your Old Testament, you're literally in the middle of the Old Testament. That's not chronologically where we are. So Ezra kind of needs a little introduction. Yeah,
0: that's a good point. Even before we introduce the book itself, Uh we almost need to make an introduction about where it is in the canon. And we've said this before. The reason that the Old Testament books are in the order that they are in is because this follows the order that they are in in the Hebrew Bible. Right. So when the Hebrew Bible is divided up very differently than we might intuitively think that you would divide up a book. It's not divided by chronology. It's not divided by theme necessarily. It's right. divided by classification. So mm-hmm. you have almost a genre break between the Torah and you have the history of Israel, you have the writings, and then you have the prophets. Right. And then you can break those down into subcategories. You have the wisdom literature, for example. Mm -hmm. Like we talked about last week, 1st and 2nd Kings is typically seen as a companion volume to the prophets, or vice versa, that the prophets are a companion volume of 1st and 2nd Kings. Uh The same thing is basically true with Ezra and Nehemiah and a couple of the later prophets that we're going to talk about. So... While I don't advocate that we reorganize the books in the Old Testament to suit a chronological reading, sometimes it's interesting to be able to place the books in a chronological order. Uh So, for example, we are at the very end of the Old Testament chronologically. In fact, after you get to the end of the book of Nehemiah, there's really nothing between there and when the angel goes and visits uh, Zechariah and right. Elizabeth. I mean, Elizabeth. it's silence yeah. for 400 years. Yes. So the other thing is, there are some prophets in the Old Testament who are contemporaries with Ezra with the end of Second Chronicles, uh-huh. who are so far apart in the order, and they don't have these nice little uh, cross references. A lot right. of times that say, for the historical background, see the Book of Ezra. Right. That it's it's good to make a note in your Bible or a, a cross reference of your own to put it in. Uh, the context of the prophets, we talked a lot about the prophets in First and Second Kings, and in that case, mm-hmm. the author of First and Second Kings talks about Elijah and Elisha, and the prophet Isaiah. Right. First and Second Chronicles handles things a little bit differently. The main prophetic influence at the end of the Book of Second Chronicles is Jeremiah. Yes. Who is a younger contemporary of Isaiah's? So. If you're going to rank the big prophets in terms of order, you have Isaiah, who's who's alive during the reign of Hezekiah, then you fast forward a ways past the fall of uh, Israel, and you get Jeremiah, who lives through the fall of Israel, and then right after that, maybe alive at the same time, uh-huh. you get the prophet Ezekiel, who right. is at least prophesying from the diaspora, which is the spreading and the exiling of the Israelites. So then we get into the minor prophets, and that's a story for a different time. We can't go into all those. But right. the ones that are pertinent for this book would be the prophets Haggai, who we covered a couple of months ago. Uh-huh. And uh, we'll recap his story here because it's mentioned in chapter 5 of Ezra. And the prophet Zechariah, mm-hmm. who we've been putting off because it's probably the zaniest book yes. in the Old Testament. Right. And then right after this story, and enduring or right close to the end of the book of Nehemiah, you get the last book in the Old Testament, which is also chronologically the last prophet of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Right. So I hope that sets the stage for how to read these books together. Ze- uh, Jeremiah's prophecy is interwoven with the book of Second Chronicles. Uh-huh. You can see some resonance in the book of Ezra to the prophecy where Jeremiah predicts that the Israelites are going to go back to the promised land. And then Haggai and Zechariah are mentioned by name as prophets who have come to Jerusalem to encourage the people who are rebuilding in chapter 5 of Ezra. So all of these people form a a contemporaneous block of
1: sources. Yeah, so let me just give you the chronology briefly uh, because this is sort of a before and after the exile. So in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian uh, ruler, conquers the southern kingdom of Judah, he destroys Jerusalem, he destroys the temple. Now there were some people already in Babylon who'd already been taken as hostages. Daniel is one of them. So he's a young man at this point at 586. Jeremiah lives through this and prophesies before this destruction in 586 and after the destruction in 586. But basically in 586 most of the Jews go off to Babylon. Well, they stay there in exile until, as Jeremiah predicted, there would be some salvation for the Jews. And it would come, as Isaiah had said, through a guy named Cyrus. Well, Cyrus was a Persian. And the Persians overthrew uh, the Babylonian Empire in 539. So think 586 to 539, basically. And so when Cyrus conquered them in 539, the Persians had a really different idea about how to rule. They didn't deport people. In fact, they sent them back. And so the book of Ezra is going to open with a decree that King Cyrus made, and he immediately said, you know what, you Jews can go back to Jerusalem. Well, that's conveniently fulfilling God's prophecy coming through this Persian King Cyrus. Well, there are a group of people under a Jewish leader named Zerubbabel Babel in 538. This is the first wave of people returning. We've talked about him before, but in 538, he leads a group of people back. Well, the first six chapters of Ezra are going to talk about that, even though Ezra's not there at that time. He's just going to talk about that first group that came back. They came back, they rebuilt the temple, and that's where Haggai and Zechariah are encouraging the people, look, rebuild the temple. I know it's a mess, but get it together. They do at 515. And then that story kind of ends. When you pick up in chapter 7, You move forward about 80 years, and in 458, Ezra comes on the scene, and he leads the second group back. But he's a priest, not a builder. Mm -hmm. And then I'll I'll flash forward just a little bit to the book of Nehemiah, because while Ezra's there, 458, Nehemiah is going to show up about 13 years later to rebuild the wall. So Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries, but we're focused on Ezra bringing back the second wave of people returning, still under Persian kings, and he's going to focus on restoring the law of Moses, restoring the sacrifices, restoring the feasts, like you were saying. It's less a kingly history at this point and now a, an ecclesial history, mm-hmm. a priest coming back. Yeah, so to connect the
0: story, the, at the beginning of Ezra, he quotes or paraphrases the end of Second Chronicles, If you want a chronological reading, read the book of Haggai between 2 Chronicles and Ezra. Mm -hmm. And he is back on the scene uh, restoring, continuing the work of restoration in Israel. And to give a quick outline of the first six chapters, like you said, this is a lot to keep in your head. But if you essentially think about the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom, the Babylonians conquer the southern kingdom... The Babylonians are conquered by the Persians. Then you have Alexander the Great, who ushers in kind of a Greek kingdom. And then about 150 years after that, you have the Romans come in. And that's what you have at the time of Christ. And in the midst of that, uh, maybe we'll do an episode on this at some point, you have some interesting things happen with the Jews between the time of the uh, Persians and the time of the Romans in the New Testament where you have the Maccabees, you have some of the literature in the intertestamental period that's uh-huh. interesting. But uh, if you think about this, the Israelites are constantly working with the great empires of the world, of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And the book of Ezra is one of those books, kind of like the book of Daniel or the books of, of Esther, or uh, we'll see this the same thing in Nehemiah, where these Jews win the favor of the kings of these big empires, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar, whether it's Darius, whether it's Artaxerxes. Right. And they are given kind of mind-blowing treatment by what at this time is probably one of the two or three most powerful people in the world. Absolutely. And they are working for God's purposes through the people of Israel. So it's almost mind-blowing that you have Cyrus, who at this point really is... Maybe the most powerful person in the entire world Mm -hmm. who is personally interacting with these Hebrew and Israelite kings and priests and rulers, sending them back, giving them a decree, giving them stuff out of the king's treasury to rebuild. And then we're going to see similar treatment later with his successors. That's right. And uh, it paints a stark contrast between the earlier kingdoms of Babylon and of Egypt who were not so big on religious liberty. And people like Cyrus and later uh, through Darius and Arxerxes, who
1: seem to have a little bit of a flavor of religious freedom in their conquered peoples, right? And and if we if I can just make a point here, because I think it's really appropriate for modern times, Cyrus in chapter one of Ezra, he he issues this decree, and here's the first line: "Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia." This is just in verse two of the first chapter of Ezra, Yahweh the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of earth and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Okay. So then it goes on, but I want you to get a feel for what's really happening here. You read that and you say, oh my gosh, Cyrus is a Jew. No, he's not. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Cyrus loves the Jews more than anybody else. No, he did this for other people too. What is Cyrus doing? Politically, he is calling on Yahweh. He says, Yahweh, your God has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's legitimating. His reign to the Jews. Now, he probably said this about other gods Moloch, your God, has given me all the kingdoms, so you may return to Mesopotamia mm-hmm. and build this. But notice what he's doing is legitimating his reign by calling on the gods of the people. Well, and you do get a sense
0: in some of the prophetic uh, words about Cyrus that he is an instrument in the hand of God. And so you have exactly. this very, this very
1: interesting double purpose going on, which is probably what you're getting. And that you're right. That's exactly what I'm getting to, is that God used Nebuchadnezzar even though he was hostile to the Jews. He destroyed the Jews. Until God made him eat grass and And, turn into Exactly. Now Cyrus is favorable to the Jews. And so my point is is that God's sovereignty extends to rulers who are operating from their own motives. And yet God is the one pulling the strings, if you were. Mm -hmm. And I I really like that aspect of this.
0: Yeah, if you look at the big geopolitical figures in the Old Testament, this is an interesting theme that emerges. You have, during the Exodus, you have Pharaoh, who is opposed to the will of God and is forced to submit to the will of God and then changes his mind. Uh And uh, the plagues are designed to show that God's purposes is greater than the purposes of Egypt, the purposes of the Pharaoh. Right. The same thing happens essentially with Nebuchadnezzar. He has a little bit easier go of it than Pharaoh does, but he too is opposed to the purposes of God. God forces him into submission. You see this funny episode in the book of Daniel where he writes this letter proclaiming the favor of God, after God has humbled him and made him walk on all fours. And there's a great painting of or uh, etching of that. I think it's one of Blake's uh, biblical portraits of him walking around like an animal. Um, And then he proclaims that God's favor and his truth has come into his mind. And then he goes back to his old ways. Cyrus is the least uh, opposed ruler. He's probably the most politically savvy in keeping his people peaceable after he's conquered them because he allows them to practice their religion. And one of the things you see in the old Testament is the view at the time was that there were regional gods who had domain over different areas Mm -hmm. of the world. So for example, you have the gods of Egypt And God indicts those gods by sending the plagues. And he shows that he is God even in Egypt. Mm -hmm. Then he does the same thing when they come into the land of Canaan. You have Canaanite gods. And the story of Israel is, are they going to choose the Canaanite gods? Are they going to worship Baal and Asherah? Or are they going to worship the one true God, uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel? And God is making a declaration that he is God over all. The rulers have a little bit different view of things. They're fine. A ruler like Cyrus is fine if you want to believe that your God is regional. Right. And in fact, he will support that. One of the things that's really amazing about Cyrus is in chapter 1, verse 7, he brings out the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple and sends them back with the people who are returning to build the temple with
1: Zerubbabel. Mm -hmm. Now, that is a way to win favor from your conquered peoples. Right, and if I could just insert a historical note here, the Persian Empire is far larger than the Babylonian or Syrian empires were with this radically different approach, and it lasted far longer. It will last from 539 until Alexander the Great conquers it about 200 years later. Mm -hmm. So a very successful way to operate your empire. So he wins favor by allowing these
0: people groups to worship their gods in their own place, but he would be offended and astounded by the claim that their God is the one true God over all. And that's exactly the tension we're going to see in Ezra and Nehemiah in bringing these people back into the promised land and reasserting what God has said about himself. Because the people who went into exile had quickly adopted that same mindset that the Babylonians and the Persians had that There are different gods People worship different people There are different religious customs They're all fine You can choose yours But let's not claim that anybody's god is the god Let's not be exclusive Let's not be exclusive And what Ezra and Nehemiah are going to say is No, we worship the one true god Especially Ezra Because he's going to go back to the Mosaic Law Uh Where God says in Deuteronomy And even earlier when he brings the Israelites out of Egypt I am the god Mm -hmm. Over all He is the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all the peoples of the earth. And this is going to be a reconsolidation not just of the temple, but of the religious commitment to God being God over all mm-hmm. in the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah. So let's recap the first 6 chapters and we'll spend time discussing 7 through 10 when Ezra arrives in Jerusalem. In chapter 1, you get the decree of Cyrus and the group of people who go back in a second wave. Chapter 2 is A Jerusalem phone book. This is the white pages (laughs) of the people of Israel. You get a big long list and numbers and tribes and priests and divisions. Uh, Chapter three, you get the rebuilding of the temple and of the altar. This Uh is a recap of... Restarting uh, sacrifices. Zerubbabel. Uh Chapter four, you get opposition to the rebuilding. Mm -hmm. Some geopolitical moves that are being made there. You're going to see the same thing in Nehemiah, by the way. Right. Chapter 5, Haggai and Zechariah arrive to encourage the people. You see the prophecy of, of Haggai that basically says, why did you guys stop building? Right. <laughs> and uh, gives them some encouragement and their discouragement. And then in chapter 6, you get the decree of Darius that allows them to continue working on the rebuilding of the temple. The temple is finished, it's dedicated, and they celebrate Passover for probably the first time since Josiah. Which has been a little while in history. He died in 609. Yeah, Yeah, so so it's been
1: 150
0: years. It's been a long time. Yeah. So (laughs) then we get Ezra arriving on the scene in chapter seven. Mm -hmm. And the first question we have to ask is, and it's kind of abrupt in this book, who is Ezra? And why do we care that he arrives on the scene? And these verses tell us a lot about who Ezra is. These first six verses of chapter 7. The most important thing about Ezra is that he is a priest tracing Mm -hmm. his lineage back to Aaron. And that's why they go through giving you the highlights of his lineage. Now this is not the entire lineage. But it legitimates his ancestry as a descendant of Aaron. And he's not just a descendant of Aaron. Right. He's a descendant of the strongest line of Aaron. He is the, the he is from the line of Eleazar uh-huh. and from the line of Phineas, couple of all stars in the priestly tradition. One of my faves, Zadok. Yes, absolutely. So he is he is listing his bona fides right. in the priestly tradition, and the reason he's doing this is not just for clout. This is not a pride issue right. for Ezra. The legitimation of the priestly line means that he is able to start doing and overseeing sacrifices in the temple, celebrating Passover, teaching the law to the people. He is continuing the uh, life, the
1: spiritual life of Israel in the time of Moses Uh and in the time of David. He's almost literally a connection between the time of Moses, say, circa 1400, and now here we are in 458. And what he's saying, because not just anyone can oversee the sacrifices not just anyone can can do these things it has to be uh, a priestly lineage Mm -hmm. and so he's basically the physical connection between moses and this time and he's about to make the spiritual connection right the covenantal connection yeah one of the big
0: events of this book is to recapitulate and to show again Mm -hmm. the dedication of the temple and the observance of the law. So if you think about it, there's there's two different time periods in the Old Testament where people made covenants, they dedicated spaces for the Lord, and they divided up priests and priestly duties. That is in Moses' time with his brother Aaron. Uh-huh. And Aaron is anointed as the priest, and they build all the garments and uh-huh. all of that. And then again, in the time of David and Solomon, David organizes the Levites into right. singing Levites and instrument-playing Levites and guarding the temple and uh, serving with the the uh, instruments and things. and the orchestra of the choir. Making the say, sac... Yeah, I mean, right. he, he gives a whole taxonomy to the Levites. And then Solomon is uh, both made king by mm-hmm. the priest and dedicates the temple along right. with the priests. And now Ezra is going to do something very similar in this third wave of right. dedications in the Old Testament. In fact, it'll be the last dedication until you get to Christ. Now, there is a pseudo dedication when Herod right. rebuilds the temple, which we'll talk about in our intertestamental episode. Uh-huh. But this is the third wave of dedications and of covenants that is made in terms of the temple. In the Old Testament. One in the time of Moses, one in the time of David, one in the time of Ezra. So, another thing that we know about him is that he has expert training in what he's going to be doing in Jerusalem. So, if you look at chapter 7, verse 10, this is one of my favorite descriptions in the Bible. For Ezra, the, the hand of God was on him because Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord to do it and to teach his statutes and rules
1: in Israel. You probably couldn't say anything better about anyone today who sets out to be a teacher of the Bible is to say this. He'd set your heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach it. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the amazing things about
0: Ezra, and he really is an example of what it means to be a faithful and godly teacher, right? I think oftentimes when we talk about preaching and teaching, we typically look to Paul. We talk about maybe Paul and Timothy. We look at some of the sermons in the new Testament. You think of Stephen, for example, right? But our view of preaching and teaching is fairly limited to a few episodes of the new Testament. And I'll admit it's harder to draw those same lessons from the old Testament because you have the priestly system intermingled with what it means to preach and teach. But I don't think you can find a better example in the scriptures of a teacher mm-hmm. than you can in the life of Ezra. And one of the things I want to point out is you're getting this description of Ezra when he's already he's already a grown man. In mm-hmm. fact, we don't know how old he is at the end of this story, right. but it's clear that he is pretty old. So I'm guessing at this point he may already be... In his 40s, 50s, 60s, when he arrives in Jerusalem. Right. Much less when he finishes his work some 20 years later. One of the things that's interesting is this statement is said upon his arrival. He had set it in his heart to study and to do and to teach the law of God before he even got back to Jerusalem. So he's doing all of this work. He set his heart to
1: study the law of the Lord in exile. Right. And then the next verse uh, kind of underscores what you're saying. Uh, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest. He was the Persian king when Ezra came back in 458. Ezra the priest, he's a scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes. So you get the sense that he's a mature, knowledgeable figure by this time. I think you're right. He's probably later in his life rather than earlier. And so he's been at this a while yeah. without any sense that it would amount to anything. Without being able to practice the sacrifices and all that he's about to set up. But he already knows every detail. Right. The, the, the wood is already piled, yeah.
0: and it just takes a spark for his ministry to come alive in Jerusalem. And he's, he's one of a long line of people. The three that, that pop out in the text immediately are Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, mm-hmm. who were capable people working for pagan kings in the right place, at the right time, submitted to God. And when the time came for God to use them, they had all the preparation, all the access, everything they needed to do what God called them to do.
1: That's a great point, because this doesn't open and say, then Ezra found out that he could go back. And so he enrolled at the local community college and crammed on the law of God. That's a great point, is that we prepare before we get used And that's hard because sometimes you don't see the point of that study and preparation. Mm -hmm.
0: And certainly, I I would imagine seeing the point of studying and teaching and memorizing and doing when... And and people speculate about what exactly Ezra was doing and why he has a relationship with the king. Uh Now, it's unlikely, I think, that he's serving in a capacity like Nehemiah because it says that he is a scribe, which Mm -hmm. is typically a kind of profession in Israel. Right. But even so, it's it's interesting that under the service of, or at least under the dominion of a pagan king, he has decided to devote his life to expositing and understanding the Hebrew scriptures. Right. So he takes this letter and this gives him carte blanche to do whatever he wants and uh, allows him to oversee some of the efforts at rebuilding. It gives him financial freedom, it gives him uh, some authority in the way that he's authorized to act in Jerusalem and to fend off challenges and and political rivalries. And he gathers people, he goes back, and then we get another list in chapter 8 of Uh people that are going to return with him. And Ezra decides we need more Levites, we need more people who know what they're doing in the temple. They decide to come, and when he gets there, he begins making reforms
1: immediately, you know, one of the my favorite things is what you're about to talk about in chapter 9 and 10. This is a teacher's, I guess maybe it's a teacher's worst nightmare, in the sense that he goes back to teach, and he immediately finds that his flock, his audience, the people he's teaching, he has a very sensitive, very hard word to teach to them that immediately confronts their lifestyle. And any of you that have been teachers know that Boy, it is hard to stand up in front of people that you love and teach people and say, "You really have this wrong," mm-hmm. and uh, that is his big uh, his big task. And I take a lot of encouragement from Ezra and from Stephen and from Daniel, people who stood up and said, "Look, I have to tell you the truth, and it's not going to be pleasant." Mm-hmm. And so, chapter nine and ten uh, is is a topic that, in the way what he has to teach them. It's just amazing.
0: Yeah, Ezra is a reformer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he comes; he doesn't come into a vacuum. He comes into a group of people that you learn in the beginning of chapter nine have been ridiculously unfaithful to what mm-hmm. God has commanded them to do. Now, it's an issue that seems strange to us, and we'll talk about this in chapter ten. Mm-hmm. It's 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 totally normal to read the last two chapters of the book of Ezra and think to yourself. What is the big deal here? Okay, this is not, this does not suit our sensibilities as 21st century people, as Americans, as 21st century Christians. We would certainly label Ezra a a fundamentalist. Yeah. And that's not always negative when you say fundamentalist, but he certainly
1: is doing things that seem to us to be a little extreme. One thing that'll help you with this a little though is. Today, in the 21st century, Orthodox Jews think exactly the way Ezra did. So I don't want you to think this is long ago, far away, nobody in the world thinks like this. Orthodox Jews think this today.
0: Yeah, so his issue is, in in the beginning of chapter 9, that the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land. If you remember in the books of joshua and judges and 1st and 2nd samuel all the way through the exile one of the big sins of israel is not just that they are worshipping other gods but they're worshipping other gods because they have intermarried with the people who lived in canaan right and this is a this is a topic that people have ethical problems with when they read the old testament through uh, through modern, modern eyes. Uh, right. sensibilities and one of the things you have to remember is what God predicted would happen is that they would intermarry and that then they would be faithless. Yeah. And actually, you get a strain of this in the New Testament where Paul says, and there's some different interpretations to this, but where Paul essentially says, don't be unequally yoked with, with non-believers. And what he means by that is if you are a believer, do not marry, do not unite yourself because you become one flesh with right. a person who, who does not share your most basic commitments. They may be a wonderful person. They may be someone that you deeply love. And this sounds harsh uh, today when we say it, but the advice there is similar to what God was giving. The chances are much better that you will go astray after other gods than that they will convert to know the one true
1: and living God. Right. And one thing I would uh, point out, too, is don't read this as God is saying, my Jews, my chosen people, the other people aren't worthy. They don't have the same human dignity. That's not what's happening. And I'll just refer you to this. You can go read it on your own. Back in Ezra chapter 6, verse 21, and I'll just give you the basic history. The first Passover that's celebrated by Zerubbabel. In that verse, it talks about... Not just the Jews celebrated it. It says, and those people of the land who had separated themselves from the abominations and the gods of the land. So it's not a human dignity issue. It's what you said, Cole, and that is how can someone who trusts in God be yoked with someone who does not? Right, and that's more what he's saying rather than you have first-class citizens and second-class citizens.
0: Yeah, this is not the way it's framed in a lot of modern conversations where this is some kind of ethnic superiority. Right. The calling of the Jews is not to be God's favorite people and better than everyone else. The calling of the Jews is to be the vessel of the blessing of God to all the nations, and they fail in that. They fail really terribly in that. They do, mm-hmm. not, they do not go through with what God told them to be in the promise he made to Abraham. They do not carry out the mission that he gave them through Moses. And what Ezra is confronting is a failure to live up to what God had commanded them to do. And so if you think of Ezra as a reformer, the best analogy for us now is to think about someone who comes into a group of people who claim to be Christians, but who don't believe the things that Christians believe. So this is more similar to what you read in 1 John, for example, in the New Testament, or the letters to the churches in Revelation that you read about, or Jesus' criticisms of the Pharisees in the New Testament, than it is about this specific issue of intermarriage. So I would say that this is a descriptive passage in the sense that it describes what Ezra was doing, and it's only prescriptive insofar that it is what a faithful biblical teacher does
1: The subject I don't think we take as prescriptive. Right. I agree with that. The other thing I would observe here, and this is a different perspective. Remember we said Ezra's a priest. When you read Chronicles and Kings, you're going to see this through a a kingly point of view. Ezra's very interested in the covenantal relationship, the Mm -hmm. law of Moses. And he comes to a group of people who say, we belong to God. And he says, and yet you are not living according to the covenantal relationship. He looks mm-hmm. at it very much like a priest, very much like a pastor. Today mm-hmm. would look at it is you go into a group of people who say I'm Christian and they're not living in any way like it. And so what would you say to them is you're not living in a covenantal relationship with mm-hmm. God. And so what he does, I think, you know, this is prescriptive. Mm-hmm. What
0: how he goes about bringing this change to the people of Israel. Is prescriptive. It is as useful today as it was then, even if we apply it to different issues. The first thing he does is he speaks the truth in love to these people. Mm -hmm. And it really is a great mix of those two together. Because Ezra is not backing down at all on what God has called them to do. We don't have some kind of halfway measure or a compromise. In fact, they have to do some very difficult things in chapters 9 and 10 to remedy, to repent of what they've done. But Ezra is also with them in this. Not in that he's with them in partaking of their sin, but he's with them as a person of their community. Right. So in chapter 6, or chapter 5 even, or chapter 9, verse 5, he begins to pray on behalf of the people. Right. So after he sees this, he tears his garments, and he pulls the hair from his head. He is weeping and mourning, and at the evening sacrifices, he rose from his fasting. So he's fasting on behalf of the people repenting. Right. And he prays to God, saying, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my Lord, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And he goes
1: on, and, and this is a really profound prayer for the people of Israel. You know, one thing interesting about this, Cole, is even though he hasn't broken this covenant, even though he hasn't married, uh, you know, done whatever specific thing, he as the priest... Lumps himself with his flock and said, we have heaped our sins up. And I think as a pastor today, even though I come into a group of people and and try to shepherd them, even if I have, I mean, obviously we all sin, but even if I have not done these things, I put myself in with them and go to God saying, oh, Lord, we have failed. And to me, that's an essential part of the pastoral or priestly calling. Mm -hmm. So Ezra...
0: He it says in chapter ten he makes confession he prays he weeps casts himself down before the house of God he's intervening right just the way, in the same way that Moses and David and Solomon did between God and the people right not not necessarily in the way that we think of uh, priests today maybe doing that he he is standing in the gap is what what they say about exactly. Moses to pray for these people to urge them to repent. And the great thing about the story of Ezra is they do. The people yes. do repent. And in chapter 10, we see Ezra continue his measures, and uh, he faces a little bit of opposition. But in the end, these people put away the foreign wives that they had given. And I want to make one note. I mean, th- th- you can't really take the brunt of this text away, nor nor would I attempt to. They do what it says they did. They And, and people have speculated that they have some kind of system where they were taking care of these people, we don't know. We have to trust that they did what was right. But one curious uh, little factor in this text is the word for marriage in the Hebrew that's used in this text and the word for divorce that's used in the second half of chapter 10 Mm -hmm. are not the typical words that you see used in the law, for example. Uh, These are words that make some scholars, not all, but some scholars think that maybe this is a kind of nullification of a polygamist arrangement. Maybe Uh this is some kind of putting away of a wife that doesn't necessarily mean sending them out to be destitute, but means that you don't have an official marriage to these people. Some people think, a different group thinks, that what Ezra is essentially saying is these marriages are not recognized. Mm -hmm. They are not real marriages. So... You can go back and forth in the scholarship and, and, and different commentaries present different um, takes on this. What I take away from that is not lessening the emotional toll that this would have taken, the right. difficulty of this decision, but that Ezra was engaged with things as they were. That he was working through real-life issues, the messiness of godliness, where you find yourself in a situation where you say, this one's pretty clear cut in the Old Testament, but we find ourselves in a situation where we say, what does the Bible even say about this? We are <laughs> right. so we are right. so many turns away from the straight and narrow path. How do you even make this right? right. That's a similar situation to what is doing here is he's taking it as it is and he's bringing those people back to God's plan for their life, not all at once and it was difficult,
1: but that is where they are headed. It's a great example, and this is so true today as well, that sin gets us into situations that become so tangled. It is very hard. I mean, once the heart changes, then you begin that journey back. But the logistics of getting back and exactly what do you undo, what do you make a restitution for, et cetera, that's a very tangled web. Yeah, and I think one of the things pastorally that we learn from Ezra that you learn
0: after being in ministry for about... Two years, I would say, Uh because that's about as long as you can handle being uh, white knuckled and idealistic on everything (laughs) that you either learned in seminary or didn't like about your church as a kid or whatever your Uh thing is. You can only hold that kind of idealism for a couple of years before you realize people's lives are just more complicated than you think they are. Right. And uh, there are a lot more factors at work than the the cookie cutter case study examples that you've right. run through in your mind. And what I would say from Ezra is the lesson that the the direction you're headed is more important than where you started. and the forward movement that right. you make without compromising. This is the this and is that's the, tendency. the essential part. Yeah. The tendency is to, kind of give yourself a break and give everybody else a break and make some kind of compromise that's only about half what God requires right. and half adjustment to the circumstances. You don't compromise, but you do realize that you can't fix everything overnight. Right. It's the movement that matters. And the movement, the direction, the pace is not always as important, but the movement, the steady movement back to God's ideal
1: is what you aim for in pastoral situations. Yeah, it's almost... uh, I would characterize it this way. I don't know if this will be useful to our listeners, but you can, once you become a Christian, you can say this. I still sin, but at least now I love God. That's insufficient. Here's a better way. Flip it around. I love God, and unfortunately, I'm still dealing with some sins. Mm -hmm. There's a, a huge difference in mindset The commitment is always to crucify all of our sins, to nail Mm -hmm. them all to the cross. But you raise a good point. Start going the right direction. Uh, I don't think God has a time limit, but you can't ever settle down and get comfortable with any of our sins.
0: Yeah, complacency and compromise are the enemies of pastoral ministry. Right. And that's the advice I wish I could have given myself when I was 22. But Mm -hmm. I also would give any young pastor, any person that wants to go into ministry is... It is a lot more complicated than you think. People's lives are a lot more complicated than you think. And when uh-huh. you're giving pastoral advice, always remember that the direction that God's calling them is the point of reference. Right. And uh, the movement is important. The speed is not as important. Mm-hmm. But it also is important. Yeah. Not stopping, not compromising, but right. headed in the direction that God is calling you is the key to leading people in repentance and in following God's will for their life. And those situations can be very tricky. Right. Well, I want to conclude by takeaways from the book of Ezra. Do you have a takeaway or a part that's always stuck out to you about
1: Ezra? Well, the uh, what we just talked about, the idea of Ezra being a bold enough teacher to put himself with the people and yet say, this is truth and we have to conform to it. But the second piece that probably hits me the most and makes me think about my Christian walk a little differently is the covenantal focus. Mm-hmm. is uh, he basically comes and says, look, we're going to restore our covenantal relationship. That's a direction and it's going to start with the intermarriage, but it's also going to have the sacrifice. It's also going to, and I tend to sometimes think of my Christian walk as transactional rather than covenantal. Mm -hmm. So that's probably my biggest takeaway is think about my walk as covenantal, relational, as opposed to transactional. Yeah, that's a great takeaway. And we typically don't think about our relationship with God as
0: covenantal Mm -hmm. in that same sense. I've always loved the story of Ezra. Like we said, I think he's a great teacher. He's a great pastor. Mm -hmm. He is somebody who spent a lot of time and energy and effort before he saw any return from God as far as faithfulness. Right. And if you keep reading, one of the best things about Ezra is not in the book of Ezra. One of the best things about Ezra is in the book of Nehemiah. Uh And he shows back up, so he's doing ministry for 10 years or so. 15 years before Nehemiah shows up. Uh Nehemiah builds the wall towards the end of the book of Nehemiah, which we we aren't 100% sure when this is, but sometime maybe right around the year, what would you say, 440? Yeah, a little after that. So it's not the end of Nehemiah's life, but it's at the end of building the wall. Right. And in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, it says that the people gathered together as one man into the square before the water gate. This is when they've completed that that area. Mm -hmm. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, and he read from it facing the square from the early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women, And those who could understand. So he's probably reading the book of Deuteronomy. Right. Which if you read that whole thing, it would take you a half day to read that out loud. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. This is verse 4. I just think this is so cool that Ezra has been, he's probably an old man at this Mm -hmm. point. He's been serving God faithfully for a long time. Right. And a long time now in Jerusalem. And they make him a platform and a podium, and he reads the book. This is like all of his dreams come true. He reads the book of the law before the people, and uh, he he opens it, and he blesses the Lord, the the great God, and the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces on the ground. This is something we mentioned earlier that only a couple of people had the privilege of this, doing right. in the history of, of Israel. And Ezra is one of those people. And he enlists the help of those Levites that he brought back. And they read from the book the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Like we said, he is a great model for preachers. Preachers yes. could take a word from this. They read clearly, yeah. they presented it clearly, and they gave the sense right. so that the people could understand the word. They could understand the law of God And then Nehemiah, who's the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said, this day is holy to the Lord. And the Levites come together in verse 13 and they're getting ready to celebrate the feast. And it says that Ezra, they came to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And so Ezra ends his life essentially running a seminary seminary, for Levites, and he is teaching. He's gotten to rededicate the the people of Israel. Uh They've reaffirmed their covenant to God. He's explaining the word of God to them. He's exposing the law, and then they're coming to him, and he's teaching them day in and day out for the rest of his life. That's the last we hear of Ezra is that he's teaching them. And I just think if there was ever somebody in the Old Testament that they're Faith became sight. You know, in Hebrews 11, it says these people didn't get to see their reward. Mm -hmm. Ezra did get to see his reward a little bit. Right. Um, Not the full reward of heaven. You know, this isn't the complete well-done, good, and faithful servant. But it is a moment where he got to see all the things that God was calling him to do come into fruition in the life of the people of Israel. And
1: flashback to something you talked about. Think of the probably a couple of decades of study... Back in exile before he ever came, all that faithful studying he could never have foreseen that day. And yet, it's because of that faithful studying that this day happened.
0: Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.